Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. We're actually going to be in Exodus 3 and 4. So if you have your Bibles, open it up to Exodus chapter 3. I've asked my dear friend Abby to come and read. So she's going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And, uh, but we're actually going to cover all of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 this morning. So, if you do, if you will, please stand as we do here at the crossing to show reverence to God's Word. We're going to be in Exodus 3. Okay, Exodus 3, 1-12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Joshua, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed me. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, Abby. thought you were going to drop a termite in there. Maybe a parasite. Just messing with it all morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is such a joy to be with your people. We thank you for this gift that the Sunday gathering is. Lord, we do not want to take this for granted because we know that there's a, a special means of grace that happens when your people gather together, that we lift up our voices and hear from you via your word, and we partake in the Lord's Supper. God, we need your grace this morning. Thank you for your imminent grace that you are with us. And Lord, I pray that you can pour out more grace upon grace here this morning as we open up your word. Lord, this is a great passage. Many implications for us here this morning. And God, I ask, would you reveal to us who you are and what you have for us? We trust you and we love you. This morning, i got a question for you. A little bit of a personal question. Hope we can go there. 
were to change one thing about yourself, what would it be? If you were to change one thing about yourself, what would that one thing be? Many of you might go to, I want to change this physical aspect of me or our body. Some of you might go to a character quality or lack thereof. I asked this question to my life group this week, and one person snidely said, just one thing? Yep, just one. And then I uh, began to tell our life group the one thing that I would like to change about myself is that I wish I was a more patient person. I wish I was more patient. I, I see my impatience. Then I asked my wife. I said, hey, Michelle, if there's one thing that you think I should change in, what is that one thing? And like, immediately she was like, your sight. I was like, what? I thought I was a pretty good driver. Well, there's a bit of a backstory here. My beautiful wife, she grew up in the amazing suburbs of Denver where everybody drives below the speed limit in this suburb. But I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, where everybody drives at least 10 miles above the speed limit. And so, Michelle, I mean, when we first started dating, she was like, seriously, how clear is this guy? And then I brought her home. And then I brought her to Dallas, and she was like, ah, I get it. You have to be aggressive when you drive around here. But she still would like to make the change in the driving habits, which I think has come a bit of a long way. But I think it has to do with the patience. Well, we all know our flaws. We all know our deficiencies. We all know our weaknesses. And I think in our passage here this morning, Moses knows his. He knows his. And he gives God five excuses, five rebuttals on why he doesn't want to be used by God. Praise God that every time, amidst Moses' faithlessness about who he is and what God's called him to, God responds in grace each and every time. So this morning, we're going to see that our God is a God of grace, but he wants to use means of grace to accomplish his purposes. Our gracious God wants to use means of grace, mainly us, accomplish His purpose. Now, I'm going to be using that phrase, means of grace, quite a bit. And just to start off, means, this is what it means. A means is something or a circumstance or someone that God uses. It'll make sense more as we go on. So, we're going to walk through our passage in nice, free little sections got three R's for you this morning. We're going to see how our God responds. We're going to see how our God reveals. We're going to see how our God responds, reveals, and reconciles. So for those of you that are taking notes, or for those of you that have a Bible, let's leave it open. We're going to be in Exodus 3, the entire chapter, and then verses 1 through 17. 
first part is Father. Verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3, what Abby read. To give you a little bit of backstory, if you were with us last week, or maybe if you weren't even with us, we saw in, or we see in Exodus 2 that Moses isn't this upstanding character type of guy. He's actually a young man in Exodus 2 who's arrogant. He comes upon the scene and he wants to be ruler and judge. And he sees somebody coming against an Israelite and he kills him. And he buries him. Hey, Jesus, will you sit down there? <laughs> That's fine, by the way. So Moses kills a man and buries a skeleton in the sand. And this thing gets found out. And Pharaoh wants to kill him, and so Moses is out of here. He flees to Midian. For those of you that remember, in God's providence, he's preparing Moses for the Exodus, when Moses is going to lead the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. But we see at the very end of chapter 2 that God's people cry out amidst their suffering, amidst their slavery. They cry out to God. Some of the very last words there in chapter 2 is, and God Which means God's about to act. We'll see how he acts in chapter 2. So Moses, now 40 years later, is a shepherd. We see that in Acts chapter 7, that was 40 years later. And he has this amazing moment. We can call it his burning bush moment. Moses, he's taking care of his flock, and all of a sudden, boom, he sees this bush on fire. But it's not being consumed. The thing with fires in our day, right now, if I had a fire here on stage, which I wouldn't, we would need to keep putting fuel on the fire. But what Moses sees is a strange sight, because it's on fire, but it's not burning up. So I asked my son Jude this week, Hey Jude, what's your favorite thing about fire? Remember what you said? Marshmallows, that's right. That's right, that's his burning bush moment. But every time we need to keep putting fuel on the fire. And so Moses, he sees this thing, and, and we're not given a lot of details about what the bush is or why the bush. You know, was he, was he walking with his flock and he saw a bush on fire in the distance? Or was he walking and then all of a sudden, bam, this thing catches on fire? We don't know. But Moses turns towards the bush. Let me, this is what he says. He says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So when I read this, I thought it was kind of funny because how Moses like talks to himself and it made me feel a little bit better about myself when I talk to myself. But then, the strangest thing happens with this bush that's not being Moses! Moses! Like many of us, when God calls, Moses follows. When God calls Moses, he responds, Here I am. Here I am. God gives him tribulation to come into his presence. We see God's holiness here. We see Moses with the sandals on. Come on. Put your sandals on. That's kind of interesting. 
whole point that Moses is trying to make here is that God declares what is holy. This mountain that Moses stands upon that is in God's presence, he, God himself, is the one that declares that mountain, that mountain holy. And therefore, in order to come into God's presence, there were certain things that had to happen in order to be acceptable to God. And I think what Moses is doing is he's preparing us, the reader, for the tabernacle, which is going to be revealed towards the end of the book of Moses, or the book of Exodus. And we're going to see all these things that need to be done in order to go into God's presence. And you see, Moses is up to standard. And like we would do, when we come into the presence of God, we would respond just like Moses does here. And it says there at the end of verse 6 that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. He's aware of God. He realizes not just what this book is, but who is in that book. Now let me just tell you, verse 2, it says that it's an angel of the Lord. But I think it's very clear by the text that it's not merely an angel or a messenger. But this is God Theologians call this a theophany. It's the appearance of God to a human being. This is God Himself. And when Moses realizes who he is in the presence of, he's terrified. But God has a gracious response to Moses. He has a gracious response to Moses. There in verse 7, he says, seen the affliction. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. God knows what we're going through today. God knows our suffering. He knows our situation. He knows our trial. When we cry out to Him, even though He might not answer in the way that we're anticipating, He knows what love how he acts. He says in verse 10 that he is going to send Moses to Pharaoh. He says that he's going to send Moses to Pharaoh. This is, this is a very interesting plan and purpose for God because if you remember Moses, he fled from Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses. But God says, what we begin to see is that everything that has happened in Moses' life, God was preparing him for this burning bush moment. For this opportunity to go back and do this and to lead God's people out of slavery. So Moses has been a shepherd for maybe 40 years. Shepherds, actually, they, they were sustained by the Egyptians. Moses those of you that remember when Moses was saved as a little baby, he grew up in Pharaoh's house, so he was raised as an Egyptian. And one could only think that Moses thought, you're going to have these shepherds go back and lead your people out of slavery. And we begin to see Moses' first rebuttal here. He says in verse 11, who am I? 
who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out to see him? Who am I? But notice how God responds to that first response. He responds with grace. He says, but I will be with you. I will be with you. And this is the sign that I'm going to be with you, that on this very mountain that you stand, you're going to serve me. This is the forerunner to when Moses leads people out. Serve God on that mountain. This is the traditional site of Mount Sinai, where Moses gets the law, the Ten Commandments. This holy mountain on which he doesn't have his hand exactly. So I think this this first point, this burning bush moment, has a unique application for us. Wherever you find yourself at in life here and now, Maybe, maybe you are on this, this perfect trajectory. You're on this plan for your life. And I would just encourage you guys, be open. Be open to what God has for you. I'm, I'm going to guarantee you that He's not going to appear to you in a burning bush, just miraculously. But I would say, amidst all your flaws, all your weaknesses, all the skeletons, not in your closet, but maybe in the sand like Moses. Whatever's happened to you in your life, like God can use you. And let me tell you, He often will use you. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this and just say, hey, make sure you're looking for that burning bush moment. For a lot of us, God wants us to be faithful for where we are at right now. The job that you are in. The spouse that you are called to serve the children that are being raised up in your home. God is calling you to be faithful there. But, don't be surprised. When that burning bush moment comes, be open. Guys, there there are some sweet things happening in our church planting network, the Crossway network right now. There is a very real reality that we will plant more than 10 churches in the city. And honestly, with the crossing, I think we could have two or three churches So I would just encourage you guys, be open. God might call you, not, not just into the ministry and, and to lead His people, but maybe He'll call you to be a part of a church plant and to be a faithful church member, a part of these plants that bear witness to Him. So be faithful now, but be open to what God calls you. And that leads me to my second point this morning. God reveals. It's going to be in verses... 13 through 22, God reveals. And so we see in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Okay, say I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What shall I say to them? And I think this question that Moses asked, what is his name, is really the fundamental question that every single person is facing. It is the fundamental question of who is God. Now, a little bit of backstory, just to give Moses a little bit of slack. This, this is hundreds of years after the Israelites have been in There's a different pharaoh, probably a number of different pharaohs that have come. And so the people of Israel, they've been enslaved. And they don't know God. And 
so when Moses replays the scenario in his head, like, okay, I'm going to go back to the people and tell them about you. But then they're going to say, wait, who? What, what's his name? Like, I think it's a legitimate question for Moses. But who is God? Who is God? I think we are going to be answering, we are going to see the answer to that question through the rest of the book of Exodus. As God is going to reveal himself through what he is going to do. And I think every single generation, not just every person, but every single generation needs to discover the answer to this question today. Who is God? And God, again, responds graciously. And I would say, Lord of grace, this is actually an amazing revelation of what God says here. He says, I am who I am. I am who I am. You say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. I remember when I was on staff with the Navigators, uh, a young college gal came to me and she's like, hey, I'm reading my Bible. I'm like, that's a good thing. You want to keep doing that. She's like, yeah, I'm reading through Exodus, but then I get to Exodus 3 and there's this crazy story of a bush that's on fire. And then God speaks out of the bush and he says, I am. And that's his name. She's like, I don't get it. What does that even mean? And I was this young guy at the time, and I was like, I, I don't know. What, what does that mean? But I think what God is saying here, this is, this is way more than what God wants to be called. You see, in Hebrew names, it's not just what your name is or, or the sound that comes out of people's mouths when they say your name. No, in, in Hebrew, names have what God is saying here is He's revealing Himself, the essence of who He is, His character, and how He's going to act. You have some footnotes in your Bible there, some, some different ways to translate that as, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And then God reveals Himself as the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital E, the Lord. And it's three successive Hebrew consonants. We don't really know how it's pronounced, but we often say Yahweh. Yahweh. This is who God is revealing Himself to be. And I would say that God isn't just telling Moses His name, but in His plan for the rest of chapter 3, he begins to unpack who he is, his character, his nature, the essence of Jesus. And I want to focus in on two character qualities of God and how he reveals himself in this passage this morning. The first one is that God is transcendent. God is transcendent. This is a word that we don't often use, but what transcendent means is that God is not part of his creation. No, he's very other. Transcendent literally means far above. And so God, traditionally, we, we view him as being in the heavens over all of his creation. So he's independent of his creation. He's not dependent upon you or me or anything else that we create. He is transcendent. Yes, he is in 
different to his other, yet he rules over his creation. We're going to see that. This, this idea of God being transcendent flies in the face in the face of the modern-day philosophy of pantheism. Pantheism is this idea of uh, everything that you see is God. The material world itself is God. Pan means awe, all. Theism means God, so all is God. And this is, this is a, a, a philosophy and a way of thinking that is very prevalent, I would say, in our culture here in North Colorado. When people see the beauty of the Rocky Mountains, and so often I've gotten into spiritual conversations with people, and they're like, "Yeah, I, I grew up in church," and, and then I say, "Oh, do you go to a church now?" He's like, "No," or they're like, "No," but I, I go up into the mountains on Sunday. That is my church. And as innocent as they may think that is, it's, it's a wrong way of thinking about God. Everything is God. That is what I worship. So in verse 15, look look at verse 15 with me. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. And notice this part. This is my name forever. And thus So we see this transcendent God. He is forever. He is eternal. There is no beginning. There is no end to this God. He is outside of time and space. Yet, He rules over His creation. He is, by the very definition, sovereign. He is not dependent upon anyone or anything. He rules over all. And that leads me to the second idea that God is imminent. God is imminent. That's with an I. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. God is imminent, and it's this idea of God's presence. Imminent literally means remaining in, and it has this idea of God being imminent that He is actively involved in His creation. He's actively involved in His creation. We've already seen this in verse 12. When Moses gives him that rebuttal, who am I that I should go? God says, but I will be with you. I will be with you. And I think this idea of God being imminent, it, it flies in the face, I think that's what I'm trying to say, it flies in the face of the modern day philosophy of deism. Deism, this idea that, yeah, there is a God, there is a deity, but he's not. Deism has this way of thinking of, okay, yeah, I believe in a God, but I don't think He's in control. And I definitely don't think He's involved in my life. It's the divine clockmaker philosophy, where God created the clock, wound it up, and put it on the wall. And it keeps ticking and ticking and ticking. He does nothing to it. No, that, that is a wrong way of thinking about God. And I would say that's a wrong way of thinking about God because God is with us. He's with Moses in our passage. So as this, this passage continues to unfold, God gives Moses this plan. Hey, you're going to go to the elders 
of Israel. And you and the elders, you're going to go into Pharaoh, and this is what you're going to tell him. But I will be with you, he said. Look at verse 17. He gives Moses this amazing promise. After they go in, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of, of Egypt to the land. God will be with them. But I think as we continue to unfold in verses 18 through the end, we see this idea of God transcending. That God is in control. That God is ruling over His creation. Because He says that they're going to go into, into Pharaoh. And initially, He's not going to listen to them. He's going to be like, who are you and who is your God? But then God with His mighty hand is going to show Pharaoh who His God is. And He's going to bring them up. He's going to bring them up. And I think it's such a unique way in, in how God reveals His plan because right now the Israelites, they're slaves. They are enslaved to the Egyptians. But then God promises them not only that He's with them, but He's going to bring them out. Look at the way that He's going to bring them. He's going to bring them from slave to favor with the Egyptians. It says that the Egyptians are going to give their, their gold and their silver and their jewelry to the Israelites. And this idea of plundering treasure, plundering goods, has this idea of a, of a battle, of a warrior who fights and then takes the treasure over who they are victorious over. But the way in which they're going to get that treasure, the text says that the Israelites are going to ask. They're going to ask the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are going to give them something. And I think it goes to show that how God is graciously revealing Himself to Moses and the Israelites that God is a transcendent, imminent God who is with them in the battle of the Egyptians. He will fight for them, and He will bring about the victory for them. And this idea of God revealing Himself, God being with His people, the Apostle John in the New Testament picked up on this too. Picked up on this idea of Yahweh being I Am. And Jesus has seven I Am statements. It's I Am the Bread of Life. I Am the Way, the Truth, and the Life. And then in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 8, this, this is an amazing passage. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then the Pharisees, they come out and they hit him hard. And I'm just going to read from John chapter 8, verses 23 through 25, to show you what Jesus is trying to say here. Who Jesus is identifying himself as. He says in John 8, 23, He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Speaking of the transcendent. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And then the Pharisees say to them, say to Him, Who are you? Who are you? And as this scene unfolds, Jesus continues to 
reveal himself to them and saying that the Father has sent him. You know, getting into this argument about Jesus is Father and him being born into sexual immorality and he starts talking smack about his mama. And then Jesus just, Jeff, you're of your father the devil. You are still in your sins and you will die in your sins. And they get, they get real fired up. And, and you just feel the tension in this passage. And then all of a sudden, Jesus brings the crescendo statement. As they're like, Abraham is our father. And then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. What Jesus is saying here is the question that all of us need to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? Jesus reveals himself as this transcendent, imminent, sovereign God. Jesus is the one that wants to reveal himself to you. So if you've never wrestled through that question, who Jesus is, I would just encourage you, this is, this is a safe place to wrestle through that question. I've had to wrestle through that before I believed that Jesus was God. And I still wrestle with that question as a Christian. This is a safe place to bring your questions. So if you have them, Come find me. Come find another leader or whoever brought you here. Don't be afraid of those questions. But I will tell you that God wants to reveal Himself to you. And chiefly, He wants to reveal Himself to you through Christ. In the unbelief that we see in Moses, as well as the Pharisees in John chapter 8, there is a punishment, there is a penalty for that sin. But God is taking care of that sin. And when we respond in faith, we have life saving. We have life upon our lives. So if you've never wrestled through that question, who is God? You can wrestle through that question here today. And I believe God is answering that question through this passage. That God, that transcendent God who is Jesus, He wants to know you. And He wants to begs the question, do you know Him? Do you know Him? And if you do know Him, oh, get ready. Got a burning bush moment for you. That leads me to our last point. Reckon. God reckons Moses. Now, reckon, you, you might not know that word. Uh, it, it can mean to call, but it can also mean to rely or depend upon. God not only calls Moses here, but he depends on him. Even amidst Moses' faithlessness and his rebuttal. So we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. And so, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Moses says, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord will not appear to you. This is, this is the third time that Moses is wavering here in our passage this morning. Amidst him taking off his shoes and being a shepherd for 40 years, then this burning bush and Yahweh moment of God revealing himself. If that wasn't enough for Moses to believe God, God gives him some signs here. And they're pretty interesting. 
God says to Moses, see that staff in your hand? Throw it on the ground. They turned into a snake. Moses, like I probably would have done, screams like a little girl and runs away. It's a joke, okay? It's supposed to be fun. But then God says, pick up that snake by the tail, which is, if this snake was a cobra, which a lot of commentaries think it was, like that would be a, a death wish. Like you don't pick a snake up by the tail. But God says, pick it up by its tail, and Moses obliges. He picks it up, and boom, staff again. Pretty amazing, pretty miraculous. But if that wasn't enough, then Moses says, take your hand and put it in your cloak. Put it in your pocket. I'll pull it out. Boom. Leprous. Skin disease. Disgusting. Probably scared the junk out of Moses. He says, don't worry, put it back in. Pulls it out, and he pulls it. It's like normal. So he gives them these signs, and then God says to Moses, if these signs weren't enough, then you will take some water out of the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and it will become blood. Which is strange, but what God is communicating to Moses is a precursor for the plagues that we're going to see from chapter 7 on. So he gives them these signs. But they weren't enough for Moses. And then he turns inward on himself. Verse 10 of chapter 4, But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech inward on himself. He begins to give God excuses about his deficiencies, about why he can't do it. Even after these amazing signs. Then in verse 11, God says, Moses, I know you. I made your mouth. This is who I created you to be. And you see in verse 12, God's even amidst his weaknesses. He says in verse 12, Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth, teach you what you must do. God continues to graciously call Moses. But then, the last straw, Moses, he says, I think this relates to Moses too. I think we often say, man, I can't do that. Man, I'm not, I don't have the gift to do what God's calling me to do. And I'm not like that person. God send them. One of his reminders, ladies and gentlemen, God reminded me of this this week that God doesn't call the equipment. I think this passage points to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And right after this amazing sign of Jesus rising from the dead, He appears to His disciples on that mountain. He says, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go make disciples. He baptized them, 
and teach them all that I have commanded. This is what men bring. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. I am with you. But Moses says, often like us, oh God, please pick someone else. Oh God, anyone but me. And what's interesting here in this passage is that the, the text says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God gets angry. But He's gracious in His anger. And we see in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, that our God is merciful, gracious, and He's slow to anger. He's fixed upon us. Have I forsaken of you? When, when something comes to me that isn't how I want it to be, my impatient self, I get angry all the time. Man, talk about my kiddos. They barely make it to the first class, but this passage spoke to me and reminded me that our God is gracious even when we get angry. Look at how He responds to this to Moses in His anger. It's not just harsh rebuke, but it is a beams of grace. He says, Behold, I will send He's coming out to meet you right now. He will be glad in his heart. He will have great joy. You'll speak to him. You'll put the words in his mouth, and he will speak to the people on behalf of you. I think there's implications for this in regards to evangelism. When God has called us to go to people, he doesn't call just individuals, but he calls a community amidst their different giftings. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here at the Fawcett, that evangelism is not this solo endeavor. Yes, there is an element of boldness. Yes, there is this element of stepping out and sharing your faith. But it's not all dependent upon you. God has given you means of grace of people in your life group, of people in your family, to reach these not yet believers with the gospel. I'll close with this illustration and story. I have a cousin named Madison, and it was about Thanksgiving last year that I that I got a text message from my dad and said, "Hey, Mac needs a prayer. Mac's wife has left. Mac is in the valley. Now, Mac, uh, he lives in Pennsylvania. We we grew up together, spent it on summers." about my age, a little bit older, and he's got a wife and, and two kids, and I get this text message, and Dad says, pray for him, and if you get a chance, reach out. And I remember being cynical when I got that text message. I remember looking at it and be like, yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. Their life is a mess. That woman is a mess that left him. But yeah, it's, it's not that surprising. Felt a prick in my heart of like, who are you, self-righteous Daniel, to think you're better than me? But I didn't reach out, and so I, I eventually sent him a text message. He didn't respond. And every winter, my parents come out to ski in Colorado, and my dad texts me again and says, "Hey, how about you reach out to Max and invite him?" Now I've been in Colorado for 16 years, and I've been trying to get Max out the Rocky Mountains for 16 years. 
need to get out of the kingdom. It never works out. Well, Max responded when I reached out and said, that'd be great. So we worked on those complaints of his and took them up. And boom, he's in the Rocky Mountains. Well, this is in mid-March, which let me remind you, there was a global pandemic breaking out in mid-March. And literally, the day that he got here, we're, we're in my living room, and I read on Twitter, Governor Polis shuts down all ski resorts. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And so, we still go up to the mountains, and we spend a week there, and it's great, and praying for Max the whole time, and he opens up about the brokenness of the divorce and what's going on in his life, and it's just a sweet opportunity for Max to see our family and how we live our lives. He came to church here that Sunday. And so, in the middle of the week, my sister and her boyfriend, they had to go home early, and so I drove them back to the airport, and Max was like, hey, can I ride with you? Yeah, sure. So we, we drive him back to the airport. We drop him off. I just make a comment to Max, like, man, I'm so thankful for the work of God in my sister's life. There's a bit of a backstory there. It's about 10 years ago, my sister was going through the same thing as Max. Husband left her, divorce, brokenness, painful, but God showed up. And God saved her. And 10 years later, my sister's walking with Jesus. God has provided this boyfriend now, and we'll see. We'll see what happens there. But I, I just make this comment to Mac, hey, I'm just so grateful for the work of God in my, my sister's life. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And so I unpack the story, and, and then Mac starts bringing these questions. He's like, hey, help me understand this, this idea of grace, because I'm, I'm a big believer in karma. And, and so I, I just start unpacking the gospel with them and, and let them know that karma is just works righteousness repackaged, this idea of you do something good and you're going to get good later. I mean, that's what all the other world religions teach. And once you do, but this concept of grace, of God giving you favor, not based on what you do, but wait, but what on Jesus has done. And, and so I'm explaining this to Mac, and, and we're driving up, and we're cresting the top of Loveland Pass at the Eisenhower Tunnel. It's just amazing conversation. And Mac is like, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, that's good. And so then I just turned to him, and I'm, I'm just like, Mac, like, you and I both thought you were coming out here to see the Rocky Mountains. And I really believe that God brought you out here to see Rocky Mountains. He looked at me, and he said, I think so too. And I'm like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, what do I have to do? And I'm like, you don't have to do anything. You believe in Jesus. You believe that he died for your sins. You believe he rose from the dead so that you can live with him. So yeah, I believe that with all my heart. I said, praise God, hallelujah. Max came to faith right, right there in my car. <laughs> it was amazing. So we're coming down, and there's my ex-sister, Silverthorne, and I'm like, oh, I don't want this the moment to end, and so we keep driving up Vail Pass, and it's just this sweet moment. So we get back to the house, and I tell Michelle, and I'm like, you're not going to believe this. Like, Max is like, she's like, she baptized me. And I was like, what? And like, Pastor Daniel on this shoulder was like, 
nah, you should really get baptized in a church. Like, you need to be a part of a church community. Like, that's a profession of faith that you're making before other people, and they're going to hold them accountable from that point forward. And the missionary Daniel on this shoulder was like, ah, no, he doesn't have a church. Like, let's fill up that hot tub. Let's baptize him here today. And so Matt told my parents, and I asked him, I said, hey, do you want to be baptized? I think we got a slide of it, JC, and we, we dumped Matt right there in that hot tub. It was, it's hard to tell in that picture, but it was snowing. It was just amazing, amazing moment of God graciously revealing Himself, not just to Matt, but also to me and my family and how He wants to use us as the people of God to accomplish His kingdom. So our God is a God that does reveal Himself, wants to reveal Himself to us. Our God is also a God of mercy. He wants to use you and He wants to use me as an individual to accomplish His kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I am so grateful for this passage. I am so grateful for the work that You have done, not just in my heart and our hearts, but how You have used this passage across millennia to reveal Yourself to Your people. God, I, I pray that if, if there's people here who, who are thinking about their deficiencies or their weaknesses, God, I ask just that they would fix their eyes not on those things, but that they would fix their eyes on You, the author and perfecter of their faith. That You have not only called them, but You have promised to be with them. God, I ask in this season, would you bring more people to yourself through the means of our churches? Would we be intentional with who we share with? God, I ask that you would do great and amazing things more than we can ask or imagine of drawing more people to yourself, of making more baptisms, that we would rejoice all the more at being the means of grace that you want to use, even amidst our unbelief. God, we believe, but help us to know that we love you, trust you, and pray that you would do